I'm Dr. Leif Tapanilla from the Idaho Museum of Natural History, and I'm here with Peter Pruitt from Zoo Idaho, and this is The Nature of Idaho. Coming to you from the 1B, Bannock County that is, we're talking all about Idaho, its wild places and wild faces, the natural setting that makes Idaho an incredible place to live and be proud of. Today we have two guests. Eve Thomason is a research associate at the Raptor Research Center at Boise State University, and Todd Katzner is a research wildlife biologist at the U.S. Geological Survey. Peter, today we're talking about raptors. You have some raptors at the zoo. We've got a couple, and uh, raptors are awesome. There are a huge number of different types of raptors across the globe, and if you ask me, they're all red tails. If you look up and you see a red tail, you That's know it's a, a red tail, tail hawk. Yeah. And if I look up and I see any other type of raptor outside of a bald eagle or a turkey vulture, it's a red tail as well. They're it, all the same to you. It, it makes it easy to identify. I think we're going to learn a little bit more today. Yeah, I Good. hope so. <laughs> Before we get there, though, nature news? Nature news. We're going to talk a little bit about the scalloped hammerhead shark. Scalloped hammerhead shark. You got my attention. Yeah. So most sharks are ectothermic. That is, their internal body temperature is determined or dictated by external temperatures. Gotcha. And what makes the scalloped hammerhead shark a little unusual is that they're found globally in coastal, warm, temperate, and tropical seas. They, uh, however, really like to eat deep sea squid. And right. when they dive for these squid, I mean, they're going significantly down in depth. And cold water. And the water turns cold. And it gets to the point where a lot of times they will dive into five degrees Celsius waters to catch these squid. And you would think as an ectotherm, as they become colder, their internal body becomes colder. And would they slow down as they, well? You, yeah. yeah. You know, that's the assumption that would, they would slow down. And so right. researchers were trying to figure out what was going on and how could they go down so deep into such cold waters as ectotherms. And another factor that plays a big role for sharks and fish in general are their gills. So that's how they breathe. You know, they'll, they'll pull oxygen out of the water through their gills, but it also acts like a significant radiator. So they can gain temperature or lose temperature really quick through those gills. And these researchers put a bunch of sensors in there and they were monitoring heart rate, oxygen levels, and all that other good stuff. And what they found out is as the scalloped hammerhead shark dives, as it gets into colder water, it actually holds its breath. It, oh, closes, really? yeah, it closes up its gills and holds its breath so it's not losing its body temperature as quickly. You know, it's not like they can hold their breath, you know, like a, a seal or a, a sea lion where they can, you know, 10, 15 minutes. But they're still down there and they're holding their breath as they're hunting. So they for, can they can re regulate their temperature. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Yeah. That's fascinating. Thanks for bringing that in. You bet. Well, today, major gear shift into birds, of course, on land. We're going to be talking about raptors. Our trivia question for today is, when did we start designing power poles to reduce electrocution risk for birds? That's a major issue. We're going to get into that right after the break. 
Hi, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Here at NPR, we try to reach all kinds of listeners. My name is Leo, and I'm eight years old. And we take feedback very seriously. I never hear much about nature or dinosaurs or things like that. So when Leo wrote us about our appalling lack of dinosaur coverage on All Things Considered, we knew we had to talk to him. Hi, Leo. Hi. I hear from your parents that you want to be a paleontologist when you grow up, and now we've got one on the line for you. Okay. <laughs> let me let you ask a question. How did dinosaurs grow to be so big? This is hard-hitting journalism, because these are the types of questions that keep paleontologists up at night. In public radio, we value our relationship with each and every one of our listeners. You listen to us, and we listen to you too. So keep our connection strong. Donate to this station right now. Here's how. You know who covers dinosaurs really well? The Nature of Idaho on KISU. Support NPR and KISU programs by visiting KISU.org and click donate. Hey, welcome back from the break. I want to welcome today's guests, Eve and Todd, to the show. Eve Thomason is a research associate at Boise State University. And Todd Katzner is a research biologist at the U.S. Geological Survey. Thank you for, uh, both for joining us today on The Nature of Idaho. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now, uh, Eve, why don't you start and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, so I am a research associate at Boise State University. I recently graduated from the Raptor Biology graduate program. Um, I grew up in Idaho. I've, I've been in southern Idaho my whole life. And I'm excited to talk about raptors today. Todd. Yeah, uh, I am. Uh, I'm a research wildlife biologist, U.S. Geological Survey, based in Boise, Idaho, and I do a lot of research looking, under, trying to understand how we as humans interact with birds of prey, and so things like renewable energy development, uh, power line interactions, all kinds of things like that, are, are where I focus a lot of my research effort. Excellent. Um, so, as we're starting to talk about raptors and raptors specifically here in the West. Can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, for our listeners, what a raptor is, uh, what kind of animals do those include, or what species do those include? We tend to think about raptors as birds of prey. Uh, in some parts of the world, raptors are uh, species do not include owls, but most of the time when we think about raptors, it's the diurnal birds of prey. There's a couple of features of raptors that are generally distinctive. Uh, so most raptors have a hooked beak, right? They tend to have really good eyesight. They tend to have gripping claws that, that allow them to hold their prey. And almost all raptors are pr either predators or scavengers. So they eat meat um, in one way or another. There's a few species of raptors that are actually primarily, uh, well, they tend towards vegetarianism, let's say that. But in general, Raptors are the predators of the bird world, and if you are not a raptor and you see a raptor and you're a bird, it's often a good idea to get away. Or if you're a, a mouse or a yes. marmot, you know. <laughs> yes, yes. Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, raptor populations, and you know, there there are some familiar raptors, I'm sure, to everyone. The red-tailed hawk that. Peter sees everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> we've got those. What other kinds of raptors are, are common that, that people would be familiar with? And what do we know about their populations here in the West? 
Yeah, so in Idaho, uh, there's actually quite a few different species that we can see here. Uh, we have American kestrels, we have bald and golden eagles, we have lots of different kinds of hawks, as you mentioned, uh, red-tailed hawks, and believe it or not, not all of them are red-tailed hawks. <laughs> there's uh, Swainson's hawks, Ferruginous hawks, uh, rough-leggeds, uh, Swainson's, Cooper's hawks. Uh, we also have peregrine and prairie falcons. Um, and turkey vultures. A fun fact about raptors in Idaho, Idaho is really a wonderful place to be a raptor. You know, there's there's lots of ground squirrel populations, there's lots of insects, things for raptors to eat, and um, there's a lot of wide open spaces. The uh, Idaho has a special natural area, the Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area, it was designated, well, I guess in the 1970s originally. And the reason it was designated this way is because it was at the time, and I think still known to be the area with the densest concentration of prairie falcons anywhere in the world. And that is just south of Boise, Idaho. Let's kind of move into the history of raptor conservation. As a kid, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of bald eagles. And in fact, even through the 70s, I, I didn't see a whole lot of red-tailed hawks. You know, when we would see a, a red tail, we would be all excited. And we all know about DDT and the effects of DDT on especially raptors and their shell formation for their eggs. At that time, what, I mean, what other issues were raptors really getting exposed to beyond just DDT? If we, if we look at the things that affect raptors, there are a few things that raptors die from natural causes. So the most, the most common reason that a bird of prey in its first year dies is because of starvation. And so if you're going to be a raptor, you've got to learn how to be good at hunting. So a lot of raptors in their first year die of starvation. Some raptors also die of interactions with other raptors. Raptors are, are really violent. They're trained to evolve to be killers. And so um, they will sometimes kill each other in fights over territories, and fights over food and things like that. Those are the natural ways that raptors die and the natural threats. I think, though, that for many, many species, the most common ways that they die are, are from what we call anthropogenic threats, human-caused uh, threats. And the list of those is, is really, really long, but you can break them down into, into groups. And so some of them are indirect, things that are not deliberately targeted at raptors. So raptors will collide with vehicles they'll collide with power lines they'll collide with with buildings um, you know if you if you live in an urban area in in idaho for example um, it's not completely uncommon to see a cooper's hawk or a shark-chinned hawk in your backyard coming to your bird feeder and sometimes sometimes they'll chase a bird right into your your kitchen window you know and that is so collision with something is or trauma is a one common way that, that raptors die raptors die from electrocution you know that's that's something uh power lines are potentially dangerous especially for big birds because a, a big bird can touch two power lines at the same time 
Raptors also die from poisoning. There's a lot of things that we produce that, that can poison a bird of prey. A lot of raptors die from lead poisoning, uh, from spent lead ammunition. A lot of birds die from rodenticide poisoning. They'll, they'll see a mouse that's looking a little sick and they'll snatch it right up. And it turns out the reason it was sick was because it had rodent anticoagulant rodenticides in its system. So all of those are, uh, all those are ways. And then there are, there are also direct ways that raptors are persecuted. Um, they can get shot. They can get, oh gosh, they can get deliberately poisoned. There are people in the world who will deliberately poison raptors. Um, they can get, gosh, um, shooting and deliberately poisoning are two of the big ones. Eve, can you think of any other deliberate persecution Not mechanisms? Trapping. Trapping does happen. Um, they can get caught in leg hold traps or other traps. Sometimes that's deliberate. Sometimes it's not. Um, I, I think those are some of the really big ways that, that raptors die. Well, okay. So you mentioned in their power line electrocution. And I think you alluded to how that can occur because they're a large bird and they're in contact with two lines at once. I think we've all seen, you know, whole flocks of birds lining like the bird on the wire kind of thing, and they seem okay. So how does a bird up there get electrocuted? I don't quite understand that. Yeah, so if, if you've ever seen a, like a hawk or a raven or an eagle perched on a power pole, you know, when they go to land on that pole or take off from that pole, their wings are outstretched. And these large birds make contact with two energized parts of that line. And whether that be those phases, the phase-to-phase -phase contacts, or equipment poles that have jumper wires that aren't covered, they can make contact with those and another energized part of that line. So, you know, smaller birds aren't as easily able to make contact with those two energized points. And so when we see birds dead along power lines, a lot of times they are those bigger birds. Um, you know, hawks and ravens and eagles. I see. And are there ways in which power companies have developed uh, or devised strategies, I guess, or, or alignments of, of power lines and, and power poles so that it makes it less likely that electrocutions happen? I don't want to give away our <laughs> trivia question or answer to our trivia question, but you know, utility companies do mitigation measures along their power lines. They create, you know, more spacing between those phases so birds can safely land and take off from them. They cover energized equipment. They install insulator covers. They may even change the entire configuration if a particular pole or an area seems to be especially attractive for birds. And then also, um, some folks may have noticed these, but uh, oftentimes they'll even install perches or nest platforms to, to get those birds away from the lines. Some birds just seem to really prefer a certain pole over another, and it might, it might be a pretty dangerous pole regardless of what you do to it. So in these cases, they, they can put those perches or nest platforms above the equipment, and that way the birds go to those as opposed to the pole near the equipment. Right. I, I think driving out west, I'm sure all of us have seen those those perches that look uh, like like a perfect place to nest up there, <laughs> way up high. And it's it's just a sheet of plywood uh, <laughs> nailed to the top of that pole, right? I think it's a little a little bit more substantial than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, so let's talk about your study 
because I think we're getting into the maybe some of the motivation of what it is that you guys were trying to do. Would you uh, try to explain, set, set the stage for that study? So I actually used to work for a power company where, um, you know, my responsibilities were to just walk along power lines and identify problem poles, make recommendations on how to make them safer for birds. And, you know, oftentimes you do find birds that are electrocuted. You you do come into areas with older equipment that uh, they just haven't been able to get to to make those those modifications to yet. Um, But, you know, for me, I started noticing birds along lines that would otherwise be considered safe for them to perch on. And, you know, I started inquiring about this, you know, what's what's going on? And I learned that some of them probably were shot. And so that for me kind of sparked that interest in, you know, how are they actually dying? How many of them are actually shot? And what's maybe driving this behavior? From my perspective, we, as a USGS biologist, we started hearing these kinds of stories from people like Eve in the field and the power companies. And it's a new threat. You know, it's something we hadn't really thought about a whole lot. And so we were able to get some money, do some preliminary research. And we did some surveys and we started finding some surprising numbers. And Eve was actually part of the research team that was doing the field work for that project. And that's actually what transitioned into this larger scale study that is really designed to begin to figure out what's going on and maybe, you know, what are the things that somebody might be able to do to address some of this. So, and I'm sitting here thinking, what would be some of the reasons for shooting a raptor? I I mean, I'm just still kind of going, that doesn't make sense. You know, uh, that's a really good question. And I think we're just starting to understand that. But from what we've learned through, you know, looking at the research and people that have been caught shooting raptors, you know, sometimes people, you know, as Todd mentioned, like they, they do, they are predatory birds. And so sometimes people might want to protect their domestic animals, their livestock. Other times, you know, they, they may be seen as competition for resources. So, you know, game animals, if somebody wants to go out and hunt a certain species and other times, you know, there, there is the wildlife trade, the legal wildlife trade is, is a very prosperous criminal enterprise throughout the world. And, you know, some species are prized for their parts. And then in other cases, um, you know, this is a hobby. This is just something that people like to go out and do for fun. I should say we we don't have a really good grip on that. You know, as a scientist, you hate to say more research is needed. You want to present results that show a result. But this is really a case where we have just begun to scratch the surface, you know, and, and there is a lot more that we might be able to figure out on this. So tell us, uh, you were recognizing, I guess, before you started the study that, okay, there are dead birds along certain lengths of power line. But then when you started doing the research itself to maybe quantify and get more clinical about like assessing mortality in these birds, where where all did you go geographically? Were you, you're in Idaho. Where else were you? Yeah. So we did our initial surveys here in Idaho. And then um, when we were able to expand out, we went to Oregon, Southwest Wyoming, and Northeast Utah as well. 
And you found similar patterns regardless of geography, or did it make a difference on proximity to urban areas or any, any of those kinds of variables? You know, it's tough to say because, you know, we kind of found found dead birds, shot birds everywhere we went. And obviously in areas where we had more surveys, we found more birds. You know, I think as we move forward on our conservation efforts, it it almost sometimes feels like an, a, a daunting never ending task where you where you see one issue and you start working towards a solution and then you find another issue you're kind of like pulling the weeds away and you realize that there's more weeds behind the weeds you just cleared part of that i, I think there's a lot of truth to that you know i've i've been i've been doing this for a little while and i i've seen that quite a bit uh, but i i think part of it is also that you know, our populations are changing, right? The numbers of people, the behaviors we engaged in. And so every time these new technologies develop, these new behaviors, there are potentially new threats and new things. And I, I think this issue of electrocution and, and uh, potential shooting is, is really epitomizes that in some really uh, important ways. Um, there, there was a time when the data suggests that electrocution was at one point really the most common ways that large birds died on power lines. And there are quite a few papers showing high rates of electrocution and, and things like that. The, the electrical utilities industry partners have really spent a lot of time and money to study this issue and to try to solve it. And so there are there are companies in the West who are entirely devoted, or at least who have devoted a huge part of their effort to making devices that can be easily installed on power poles to protect birds from electrocution. And, you know, new new poles that are built are designed to be bird safe. And so we've solved this problem. But on the flip side, numbers of people in some of these cities are increasing, you know, recreational rates are increasing, there's all kinds of changes. So on the one hand, it is kind of frustrating that, you know, we solve this one problem and a new one crops up. On the other hand, you know, if you think about human behavior and the way our society is changing, it does kind of make sense that as we change, there, there's going to be changes to the, the threats that wildlife face. And I think the important thing, and I, it needs to be stated over and over again, we did, and you guys are part of the solution with the electrocution. So, you know, it's not one of those things where you throw your hands up and says, oh, what does it matter? There's just going to be something else. You know, you're slowly checking off all the boxes. And so every solution is good. And there are really so many things that we do that have benefits to, in this case, raptors. You know, I mean, DDT is a brilliant example. We, bald eagle and peregrine falcon populations have recovered brilliantly because of actions that people have taken. And they, they can also, though, confuse us. And I, I think there's a really good example, and it might be worth returning to that, that bald eagle that Eve highlighted in her paper that had had evidence of both shooting and electrocution. And I don't, I don't know if it would be appropriate, but maybe Eve should describe that one because it kind of closes the circle on that. 
Yeah, so um, often when we find a dead bird along a power line, I think it's been the first assumption is to think it was electrocuted and, and fix whatever the problem may be to make that pull safer. And oftentimes there are signs uh, that the bird was electrocuted. There's external injuries, there's singeing, there's burns. But in some cases in our, in our study, we did have several instances where there was external injuries that would suggest that a bird was electrocuted. But it, when we x-rayed it, it had actually died from being shot. And so one example, and we highlighted it in the paper because it, it was a pretty extreme example of this because of the species that it was, the level of burns that this bird had. One of the bald eagles that we collected um, in one of our sites had actually, the utility had responded. There was an outage, power lines were down on the ground. They found the dead bald eagle, it had lots of burns all over its body. And so, you know, they marked it as uh, electrocution collision. They, you know, spliced those lines back together and installed flight diverters. And flight diverters are useful to help birds see power lines so they can avoid them and reduce the risk of colliding with those lines in the future. But when we x-rayed the bird, you know, there's, there's shotgun pellets all throughout it. And one of our protocols is to look for signs of healing because sometimes there could be um, evidence of a, a bird being shot in the past and it, you know, later dying from something else. But in this case, we were able to match it up with entrance wounds. Uh, there were fresh injuries, bruising, and shotgun pellets in the head and all throughout the body. And so it was clear that this bird had died from being shot and then likely fell into the lines afterwards or the equipment afterwards. Um, but it is kind of you know important to note that I think it'd be kind of tough for a bald eagle to take down all three of the power, the lines and the neutral. And so for me, this kind of leads me to suspect that maybe somebody had shot through the lines at the bird and maybe actually shot those power lines down. That's interesting. You know, we, we sit there and we do see the platforms and the nests with, for the bald eagles and osprey and other ones. And for someone to see that as an, an opportunity is, the, yeah, it, it can be a little bit disheartening. There really can be unintended consequences of our conservation actions. And I think that's, um, you know, the fact that we look for electrocution first is a good example of that. And the fact that we can lure birds into a place where they're at risk, potentially at risk, is another. It's a difficult subject, right? Yeah, boy. I wanted to ask about you know, where can folks learn more about raptors? I think probably a, a big part of, you know, recommendations uh, to our public is to learn more about these animals, why they're interesting in their own rights, but but valuable for ecosystems. Could you help us uh, and our listeners find those resources? Sure. There's a, it's called the World Center for Birds of Prey. Uh, it's in Boise. It's, uh, Todd, maybe you can describe it a little bit better. You might have more experience with it. There are, I mean, there, there are a number of centers throughout North America that are dedicated to raptor conservation. The World Center for Birds of Prey is one of them. There are a number of others uh, throughout Idaho and, and throughout really the U.S. And, and they, they do focus on trying to convey information about, about birds of prey. You know, Eve's 
Eve's paper, and and I don't know if you'll put a link up that your listeners might be able to get to. Eve's paper has some really good information as well. I mean, and, you can also go, you know, if you're your local wildlife agency, uh, you can either call or go to their website. There's lots of information about all the wildlife that can be found within that state or that region. And I think another important thing, too, is as a citizen, if you do see a raptor, or another bird, you know, we're working with trumpeter swans in the state of Oregon here at Zoo Idaho. Trumpeter swans have power line strikes fairly regularly too. If you're a person who sees a bird that has a power line strike, you know, call your fishing game um, regent and, and get them out there because when they know, when you guys know, when the power companies know, that's when we can make things better. Yeah, and I, I like to emphasize that, you know, one important step in solving conservation problems is to understand what's causing that problem. And in this case, you know, understanding how birds are dying along power lines can help, you know, managers, law enforcement, utilities figure out the best solutions to solve those problems. Well, we really appreciate you bringing this, uh, this, this story to us. Um, I want to thank you very much very much for that. Uh, we have a little business to take care of, though. Can you help us with our trivia question? The very important trivia question is, when did we start designing power poles to reduce electrocution risks for birds? I have some pretty good ideas. <laughs> um, I think that we started in the probably the late 60s and 1970s. Idaho has an important role to play in this because there was a fellow named Morley Nelson over based in Boise who actually really was a leader in the field of the development of bird safe power poles. And he actually had birds that he trained to land on power poles and he would watch how they would land and take off from those power poles so that he could give guidance on the best way to design those so that they were bird safe again in Idaho and in the early 1970s. If I was that bird, I'm like, oh man, you want me to land there? Is that safe? <laughs> you know, I can't put on a crash helmet or anything like that. <laughs> well, we really want to thank Eve and Todd for joining us today to talk about raptors and power line strikes. And for those who are interested in learning more, please visit the Raptor Research Center at Boise State University, and the Avian Powerline Interaction Committee, which is aplic.org. The Nature of Idaho receives support from listener contributions to KISU-FM. Shows are produced at KISU Studios in Pocatello at Idaho State University, with editing and production by Jamin Anderson and Kalise Kindle. Music is by Idaho's very own Sons of Bannock. Audio of this and all past episodes of The Nature of Idaho can be found at KISU.org or from Spotify and other select podcast services. Send thoughts and suggestions to noid-kisu at isu.edu.